And to follow up with the announcement that Bethany made, we're excited about our membership class coming on. Eventually, we want everybody who's a member to walk through the process. And that class will be a weekend where it gives us a good chance to connect with you and you connect with us. And we'll do them four times throughout the year. And then uh, for... I was about to say for all you old timers, I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but for all of you who've been with us, you know, for a while, of course, we've only been around two and a half years, so nobody's really an old timer, but uh, for all of you who could have been around, we'll, we want you to engage and interact with the, the material. Uh, this whole past year, we've um, just spent time thinking and praying and kind of talking a lot about who is it that God wants us to be as a church and where are we going, and this is a great opportunity to kind of consolidate some of those things and get them clear. And that's part of the reason we're looking at Revelation, because in Revelation, what you have is you have this vision, this image of the risen Christ who's seated on his throne. And in Revelation 21, he says, behold, I am making all things new. And then in the book of Revelation, he offers us an invitation to join him as he's making all things new. And we're looking at his Jesus's message to the seven churches in Asia Minor because these are the way he's uh, these are the things that he's going to use to evaluate those churches to determine whether they are they healthy. Are they living in accordance with his word? And uh, are they joining him in making all things new? Now, we live in an area where it's very important to be able to prepare yourself for the storms that could come. Because some of them can come and they can be powerful and they can be destructive. So one of the most important things to live here well is you have to have kind of storm preparation procedures. But what's interesting is at least since the rise of social media, there are other storms that can come on you that you might not be able to prepare for. And as sociologists, you know, there's a new word. Um, it's called the shame storm. That on social media, you can be plunged into a storm of shame. And as uh, kind of cultural commentators tell the story, they trace it back to a certain young lady in 2013 named Justine Sacco. And so Justine, um, she was 30 years old at the time. She was the senior director for corporate communications for a company called IAC. And IAC owns, you know, their subsidiaries, they own things like Match.com and Tinder and FanDuel and things like that. So she's the senior director of their communications. And she had to take a trip to South Africa. And so she started tweeting these uh, really off-color, kind of acerbic little jokes where she was wanting to chronicle the uh, indignities of travel. So her first tweet was, you know, quote, weird German dude, you're in first class. It's 2014, get some deodorant. Then slash my inner monologue as I inhale BO. Thank God for pharmaceuticals. And then she landed in Heathrow Airport and her tweet was chili dash cucumber sandwiches dash bad teeth we're back in London. And then right before she got on the plane to fly from London to tape, uh, Cape Town, her tweet was, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. 
And so she chuckled to herself. She pressed send on the last one and then wandered around the airport for about 30 minutes to see if any of her friends responded to her tweet. And no one did because she only had 170 followers. So got on the plane, no Wi-Fi, put on the noise-canceling headphones, and went sound to sleep. And while she slept, during that 11 hours, something unusual happened. Uh, her twi Twitter feed became, in essence, a horror show. She knew something was kind of unusual because when she landed, she flipped on her phone and the first text was from somebody she hadn't seen from high school and it said, you need to call me immediately. And then the next text was another friend that she hadn't seen from high school and it just said, I am so sorry, dot, dot, dot. And then another text from her best friend named Hannah that said, you have to call me immediately. I'm trying to log in to delete your Twitter account. And then you can actually watch. In the 11 hours that she was on the plane, there were over 11,000 angry tweet responses. And uh, I typed some of them out. None of them are, well, most of them aren't appropriate to read uh, in church. But what was so fascinating is that by the time she landed, unbeknownst to her, uh, she had been a part of her life was almost like a, it was almost like a dumpster fire or a train wreck that's happening in slow motion and the person doesn't even see that it's coming. And she landed, she, uh, by the time she landed, she found out she had fired from her job and became uh, the number one trending person on Twitter. Uh, at the time, there were uh, thousands of angry things. Uh, one of the, some of the tweets said, uh, at Hannah's attempt to delete it said, "Sorry, Justine Sacco, your tweet will live forever." And it's interesting because sociologists kind of paint that day. That day, something happened culturally where things can just gain an energy and a momentum that you can't even control, and they started calling them these shame storms. And for her, in one sense, she's not a sympathetic character because she shouldn't have said the things that she did and they were vulgar and vile, but her life was ruined because of those tweets. And you think, well, what happens to people who have entered the shame storm and their life are ruined for things maybe they don't deserve? One of the best articles I read all last year was this article called The Shame Storm by Helen Andrews in First Things. And she was a young reporter where she would go on like CNN and uh, CNBC and uh, those shows. And on one of those like Sunday morning talk show interview interactions, uh, she had a very um, tense interaction with another commentator who just happened, well, not happened was her ex-boyfriend that she had just broken up with a couple weeks ago, and he kind of spilled on air a lot of their dirty laundry. And then she got immersed in this shame storm that she still hasn't fully recovered. She actually lost her job, had to leave the country, is now living in another country trying to rebuild her life. And you're trying to think, all right, what happens when you have this kind of storm that can come on you? In that article, she wrote this. She says, no one has yet figured out what rules should govern the new frontiers of public shaming that the Internet has opened up. These new rules are obviously required. Shame is now both global and permanent to a degree unprecedented in human history. No more just moving to the next town to escape your bad name. 
However far you go and however long you wait, your disgrace will only be a Google search away. Getting a humiliating story into the papers used to require convincing an editor to run it, which meant passing their standards of newsworthiness and corroborating evidence. Those gatekeepers are gone. Most attempts so far to devise new rules have taken ideology as their starting point. Shaming is okay as long as it's directed at men by women, the powerless against the powerful, but that doesn't address what to do afterwards. If someone is found to have been wrongfully shamed, or even when somebody's rightfully shamed and they just want their life to be put back together. And as I was thinking about this, I thought it was interesting that there's a website called McSweeney's. They ran a, they run kind of it's satire and they did a satirical, um, they call it the obituaries for the canceled. Have you heard that term? But canceled is the term of what happens to you when you become, uh, on social media, you become in essence a non-entity. You know, now no longer exist. So he said they, some obituaries were Amy Rosenzweig, 28, was canceled Friday for remarking in the Bushwick coffee shop that she admires Ivanka Trump's hair. There was no memorial service for her. Following a long battle in defense of a controversial Facebook post, Meredith V. Van Doren, 20 years old, finally succumbed to cancellation at her home on Thursday night. She was surrounded by friends and loved ones who, upon her cancellation, insisted that they always thought she was kind of weird and had their doubts about her anyway. Her parents, Peter and Linda, would like you to remember their daughter for the sweet little girl she was, not the raving lunatic she became. And it's a satirical thing. What do you do when you enter into this culture of shaming? And it's interesting because we're actually going to get wisdom for how to handle things like this in the text that we see in Revelation. So let's turn there and look. We're going to look at the church in Smyrna and then the church in Philadelphia. So as we look at these different churches, pull up the, uh, the map. So let's pull up the map, and Jesus is going to dictate seven messages to seven churches all around Asia Minor, and there's three primary things he's going to tell them they need. They need sound doctrine, they need renewal and refreshment of the Holy Spirit, and then they need to live faithfully in their age. And as you look at the structure to churches one and churches seven, it tells them their problem is they lost their first love and they become lukewarm. They don't have what on our list on your bulletin is number two, refreshment and renewal of the Holy Spirit where their hearts are revived and encouraged and they love. And one of the hardest things, the most important thing in any important relationship is to maintain the um, level of love that is appropriate for that relationship. That's the first thing to churches 1 and 7. To churches 2 and churches 6, he doesn't critique them, but he tells them the call for them is number 3 on our list. The call is to live faithfully. He says, you're about to enter into a season of incredible difficulty, and your goal is to be faithful. Hold on. Maintain. Be faithful. So we're going to look at the church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, and then chapter 3, verse 7 through, uh, 7 through 13. And we're going to focus primarily on the church of Smyrna as an illustration of what does it mean to live faithful in the world we're in. So follow along, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation, your poverty, 
but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So as we look at this church, there's a couple things that can really be helpful for us as we think about what does it mean to live faithfully. All right, first some background for the Church of Smyrna. Uh, the Church of Smyrna was probably the most beautiful city in Asia Minor. There, uh, some of its, its kind of tags, it was called the Crown of Asia, the Flower of Asia. They had incredible competition with the church or the city of Ephesus on which city is the, you know, the best, the most wonderful one to live in. Uh, but it is interesting that the call to the Christians in, the tur- in Smyrna, now Smyrna is the most beautiful city in Southern Asia at this time, and the call is to be ready to suffer. You know, often we don't think about suffering in exotic places. There's a pastor I knew who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of the Cayman Islands for 10 years. And do you know what the number one thing people would respond to him when he would tell them that he's the pastor of the First Baptist Church of the Cayman Islands? You know what they'd say? Must be nice. Suffering for Jesus, the Cayman Islands. And it was, it was the assumption that the sting of suffering doesn't touch people in sunny places. Why would you even think that? And the reality here is Smyrna is a beautiful place, and yet it's going to be filled with deep, dark, difficult suffering, especially for God's children. Now look, there's three things that he says, I know, I know. These are things that I know uh, and that I think these three things are, are a window into three of the primary drivers that can drive suffering, drive us to um, want to abandon the faith and turn our back. But notice in verse, verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander. Those three things, the tribulation, the poverty, the slander. And uh, let's look at those. First, I know your tribulation, or your, your translation might say your affliction, your pressure. It's kind of a hard word to translate. It really means pressure. It says, I know you're the, the pressure that's on you. And for these Christians, um, we have to get into their world, and for them, for the Christians who are living in Smyrna or any of these Gentile cities in Asia Minor, there was tremendous pressure coming from two directions. They were literally caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, it's very similar. Their experience is very similar to what a Palestinian Christian would experience right now. So when we were in Israel a couple weeks ago, we met some missionary Palestinian Christians in Bethlehem. And part of the reality of their experience, Bethlehem used to be a predominantly Christian town. In the last 20 years, 90% of the Christians have left because there's so much pressure, social pressure, economic pressure. And uh, the pressure comes from, on the one hand, if you're a Palestinian Christian, your fellow Palestinians view you as a traitor. You're treasonous because you're a Christian, not a Muslim. 
And then if you're a Palestinian Christian, the Israelis around you, they, they hate you because you're Palestinian. And so you're actually getting hate from both sides. And that's exactly what the Christians here in Smyrna were experiencing. They were experiencing it from the Romans, and then they were experiencing it from the Jews on two fronts. So first, let's think about the Romans. Uh, both Smyrna and Philadelphia were two centers of emperor worship, places where uh, the emperor would be worshipped. And there's a fascinating uh, series of books by Larry Hurtado, who's one of the leading first century historians of antiquity. And uh, he's got this book called Jesus, the Destroyer of the Gods, and this fascinating series of lectures where he asks the question, why would anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? So from a historian's perspective, the fact that anyone, especially men, would become a Christian in the first three centuries Roman world is, it's a mystery. It, it can't be explained uh, uh, from uh, sociological factors because there was such intense disincentives socially to become a Christian. He says the earliest Christians were widely ridiculed, especially by the cultural elites. They were excluded from the circles of influence and business. They were often persecuted. Many were put to death. He said the Roman authorities, especially in these kind of high-class places um, like Smyrna. One thing I forgot to mention about Smyrna is that it's actually the ancient home of Homer. It's where Homer's hometown was. So it had this long history of being you know, sophisticated, being um, urbane and intellectually savvy. But he says the Roman authorities were uh, extremely hostile to them compared to other uh, religious groups. Why? And it says because he expected that the people would have their own gods, but they would be willing to show honor to all the other gods as well. So in the ancient world, every home, every city, every professional guild, even the empire itself had its own gods that you would uh, perform acts of worship for. And you couldn't even go to a meal in a home without some type of act of devotion towards the gods. So you think about it. Like, how many of, how many of you men love to eat meat? Like, in the ancient world, you never would eat meat without a sacrifice. That's why you had religious sacrifices, because you would then slaughter the animal, and then you would cook it, and it was always a communal event. So eating meat was just part of sacrifice. So you would never go to a communal meal without some type of religious uh, sacrifice. And so to not take part in the different um, sacrifices was highly insulting, and it was also dangerous. He said you were considered a traitor to your home, your city, and even your country. He said, yet somehow Christianity spread through all the ethnic groups, as most of the converts were former pagans who suddenly, after their conversion, uh, refused to honor the other gods in this way. So they were getting tremendous pressure from the Romans, but then you also see tremendous pressure from the Jews. That's why to both of these churches, did you notice Jesus' words for the, the Jewish synagogue there? It's stark. It's harsh. He says they calls them the Jews. They, they say they're Jews. They say they're part of my people, but they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. And so this is not an ethnic knock on the Jews because Jesus was a Jew. John, who's writing this, was Jewish. But what he's saying is there's a group of the Jews, and the reason why what's happening is uh, the Jews had a special dispensation from the empire where they didn't have to take part in the sacrifices to the emperor. Um, they were seen as weird, they were seen as odd, but they were allowed this latitude. 
and what the Jews in this time were doing were actually, uh, in essence, the Christians were saying, hey, we're just like them. We, we, we actually are Jews. We're just following the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of our Old Testament scriptures and prophecies. And the leaders of the synagogue were saying, no, they're not. They're not a part of us. So by them putting them out, it put them in a terribly precarious position where they no longer had any social protection. And so that's why they're getting the pressure from both sides. They're under intense pressure, scrutiny. And then notice what it fuels. The second thing is poverty. He says, I know your poverty. See, in the ancient world, you had to be a part of this community. Once they got put out of the synagogue, most of them would lose their jobs. If you didn't sacrifice, every trade has its own deity. And if you didn't kind of follow the standard procedures and worship that deity, then you couldn't be in a trade and have a job. So there was tremendous, um, not just social pressures, but economic pressures put on them. And there's this beautiful little parentheses that Jesus says, he goes, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. You are rich. You think you're poor, but you're actually not. You're rich. And then the third thing that's coming on them, he says, and I know the slander. So they're getting it from three directions, social pressure, economic pressure, and then this slander. And this actually is an interesting word. You might have a note in your Bible that gives you a little note that says, it's the word blasphemy. He says, I know the blasphemy. But what's intriguing is this is the only time in the New Testament where blasphemy, every other time blasphemy is used, it's used to slandering or blaspheming the name of the Lord, God. It's a slandering of God. And in the ancient world, in the Jewish world, it was a capital offense. That's what Jesus was tried for when he was crucified. He's blaspheming the Holy One. And what's fascinating is Jesus says, I know the blasphemy you're experiencing. And so what I think it's getting at is there's such an intimate connection between Jesus and his people that if you slander them, you actually are slandering him. It's the same dynamic that Paul experienced when Paul, who was Saul, was on the road to Damascus to persecute the Christians, and then Jesus appeared to him, knocked him off his donkey, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am the Lord Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Imagine how that landed on Paul. He probably said, like, uh, 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 no, it's not you, it's, it's them. I, I'm going after them, not you. But what Jesus was reminding him of, telling him, that there's such an intimate connection between me and them, that to attack them is to attack me. And it's interesting how that works itself out in Paul's mind and his theology. The number one phrase he uses for Christians are those who are in Christ. He doesn't ever call them Christians. He calls them in Christ, the ones who are actually in him. So Jesus gets really upset when his children are misrepresented and attacked. And he says, I know these things. I know you're being um, pressured socially. I know you have these economic difficulties that standing and uh, uh, claiming allegiance to me is causing you a tremendous economic difficulty. I know it. And then it's causing your name and your reputation to be slandered. I know it. And I think one of the things you see here is this is Satan's primary strategy to try and crush Jesus' people. Always brings them out into the public arena of shame and wants to humiliate them publicly. So they'll turn their back. He says, I know these things. And there's two more things you notice in verse 10 where he says, you need to know that there's more coming. Prison is coming, and for some of you, even death. But what this gives is it gives us a deep, sober 
realistic picture of what real faithfulness is going to cost us. It's difficult. It's costly. But then notice what his call to them is. Look in verse 10. What does he command them? He says, do not fear. Don't fear what's going to happen. And I just wonder how much fear can be the fire that fuels those other things. Like what happens when you combine um, social pressure with fear? What might it cause you to do? Or you combine economic difficulty with fear? What might it cause you to do? Or you combine um, public ridicule with fear? What might it cause you to do? I think you combine those things with fear is what will cause people to turn their back, to cease following him. Fear can fuel that pressure, fuel that poverty, fuel the slander. But what I want you to see is the best way to lose your fear is to find your faith. If you want to lose your fear, you need to find your faith. And there's seven things that Jesus says, I know all of these things are happening to you, but if you're going to stand strong, you need to look. You need to know. This is true of you. I know it. But here's what's true of me. And you need to know it. You need to find your faith. And you need to see me. You need to see that his, that I am timeless. See that in verse 8? I'm the first. I am the last. Every other thing is passing away. Every storm that can come your way where there is social pressure, economic pressure, or um, a shame storm that can descend on you, this too shall pass. But I am the first. I am the last. I will be here. I'm timeless. And then look at verse 8, his victory. I died and I came back to life. Because I died and came back to life, there's nothing ultimately that can destroy you. The worst thing any of these things can do to you is kill you, and I've overcome that. So if I've defeated that Goliath that's terrifying you, all other things are small in comparison. You need to see my victory. And then just think how much comfort is in the words, I know. I know. I know the pressure you're under. I know the difficulty. I know. There's something just beautiful about being in the presence of one who can sympathize and can understand. And he says, I know. You know, I think one of the remarkable things just about Jesus' church is there's just so many, there's probably hundreds and hundreds of things that we don't even know about that would never make the news or never even get put on social media in any way that are just God's people doing small things to bring his kingdom and make the world better. And uh, one of them is John Ritchie. Where's John? He was here earlier. John's back there. John leads every Tuesday at 2 o'clock. He leads a Bible study in the um, assisted living home behind Minchie's uh, or Nona Blue. I know it is behind Minchie's. And he leads a uh, Bible study for uh, some ladies and, and men in there, normally about seven, eight uh, ladies in the assisted living. And a couple times I've had the opportunity to fill in for him while he's gone. It's just a sweet, beautiful time of somebody who's just caring for uh, people. You know, I, I, hope when, I hope when my wife is in an assisted living home, there's somebody like John who will love them enough to come and remind them of Christ's precious promises and the sweetness of the word. And 
I was filling in one Tuesday, and we were looking at different psalms and talking about how powerful songs can be to, to give us encouragement and hope even in the midst of our difficulty. And one of the ladies had recently lost her husband, and she said, uh, you know, at my husband's funeral, this was the song that helped me. And then every lady in the room just let out a mmm. And then it started because every single lady in that room had buried their husband. And some of them had buried their children, or several children. And they started sharing at, at my husband's funeral, this, this is the song that I remembered. And there was this instant bond and connection. It's almost like, all right, I'll get out of the way now and let you... Uh, share your encouragement, hope, and wisdom. There was this, this resonance that I've experienced this and I've walked through where you've walked through. And this is exactly what Jesus is telling them. I know these things. I've walked through all of these things. And then notice his values. In verse 9, he says, you think you're poor, but you're not. You're actually not seeing yourself or your situation correctly. You're not poor, you're rich. And it's such a contrast to the church in Laodicea. Remember them? They claim to be rich. We're rich. We need nothing. We have all we need. He says, you think you're rich, but you're poor, blind, wretched, pit and pitiable. But these Christians think they're poor, and he says, you're not. You have treasures, riches, his values, his control. I love it where he says there's, su there's suffering coming. It's coming. But it's only 10 days. It's only 10 days. It's not going to last. We don't know what that means. And actually, uh, the church went through a significant period of trials, but it's only 10 days. You can talk to endurance athletes, and there's different, these kind of diabolical run ultra marathons through the mountains, through Colorado, and these different races that if you're crazy, you can do. And there's some of them where you actually don't know how long the race is. And one of the things that plays on the endurance athlete's psyche is just not knowing when it's going to end, the duration. And one of his great gifts to them, he says, it's, it's only 10 days. It's, it's a defined duration. It's not going to last forever. Then you see his purpose is to test them, to refine them, is to test you. And then his great generosity, he will give them a crown of life that they won't bow down to Caesar and uh, the sting of the second judgment won't touch them. And so his call for them is just to keep going. Keep going. You're in the middle of it's going to be difficult, it's going to be dark, but just keep going. And there's, there are going to be seasons in your life where the whole goal is just keep going. And one of the things that we can strengthen us is we look to the one who suffered for us. So you look at those three things, and all three of those things, you can look to the cross and see that he actually experienced a pressure on the cross like we will never experience. And he suffered in a way, and he can sympathize with us. You talk about poverty. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that though he was rich, he became poor for our sake so that we could become rich. And the beauty and the glory of the cross is that he gave up all of his heavenly riches so that we can have access to them. And then he experienced, talk about shame storm, he experienced the ultimate shame on the cross where he was stripped, vile, ridiculed, and mocked, and then experienced all of those things. Now, I'll just briefly just mention the church in Philadelphia. We'll actually pause there, and uh, I'll come back and mention their call is a little different. Their call is not to... Keep, uh, just keep going, their call is that a door of opportunity is opened and he wants them to run through it, 
to go. There's going to be opportunities. But let's, let's close and think about this. Think about in your own life right now. So spend a, a moment and just think, all right, what does faithfulness look like for me right now? What's God calling you to? Maybe it's just the steady faithfulness of just, just keep going. Just be faithful one step in front of the other. And then what's he calling our church to? You know, some storms you can see coming and prepare for, and then other ones you can't. You know, if you look at the early church, I think there's so much wisdom in how the early church dealt with the pressures that they were in from the, from the Romans, from uh, just their world. And one of the things Tim Keller says, he says, the earliest church was seen as too exclusive and a threat to the social order because it would not honor all deities. But today, we're increasingly being seen as exclusive and a threat to the social order because we won't honor all identities. So I wonder, are we entering into a season like that. You know, it's interesting here. Take a, I'll close with this story, and we'll do a little historical speculation. Uh, we don't know when Revelation was written. There's two kind of debates, either kind of an early date around 64. The two candidates are either 64 AD or around 90. Uh, my tendency and hunch, I lean towards 64, an early date, but most scholars uh, say 90. Either way, there was, there was a boy in the church of Smyrna when this was read. If it was read at a young age, he was either about five years old or he was about 30 years old. So he's either five or he was either 30, and he would become one of the most famous Christians in the world and one of the first kind of great martyrs uh, 56 or 60 years later after roughly after it was written, depending on when you date it. And it's interesting to think, what did that church have to be like to create a man like this? And I'm going to tell you, it's the story of Polycarp. So Eusebius, one of the first church historians, gives us his story. And I had it flagged, but my tag just blew away somewhere. So let's see if we can find it. All right, so uh, Polycarp became the pastor of the church in Smyrna. And as the pressure begins to mount and uh, people in his church, by this point, there's 11 people in the church who actually have been martyred, taken into the public arena, killed. And then there was a kind of a, a call for find the man. That's what he was called, the man. Find the man. Find Polycarp. And we will get him. At this time, he's maybe 86 years old, maybe a little older. And all of his friends, family, the people in the church encouraged him to go into hiding. And, uh, but he wasn't too enthusiastic about hiding, so kind of did it half-hearted and made it pretty easy for them to find him. Uh, Imperial soldiers were sent to grab him, get him. Uh, when they came to get him, he said, give me. He prepared, actually, a feast for the soldiers and said, here, you eat and wait, I need time to pray to prepare my heart to enter the arena. And so he goes up and prays, and then um, this is how the church in Smyrna then wrote a letter to send to the other churches to describe what happened to Polycarp. He said, finally, he had finished his prayer, 
And after remembering all with whom he had ever come in contact, the small, the great, the famous, the obscure, and the whole church throughout the whole world, when the hour for his departure had come, they set him on a donkey to lead him into the city. Herod, who was the chief of police and the father of Nicissus, met him, and they transferred him into their personal carriage. And sitting beside him, they tried to persuade him, what harm is there in just saying that Caesar is the Lord? And sacrificing, you will be saved. And at first, he did not answer them. But when they persisted, he said, I will not do what you advise. Then threats replaced the persuasion. And they threw him out of the carriage so roughly that he scraped his skin and getting down. But he walked briskly into the stadium as if nothing had happened. And there was a noise that was so great, no one could be heard. So the stadium in uh, Smyrna at this time, about 28 to 30,000 people in the large round stadium uh, is where they would hold their Olympic games and then different things. Also, you know, the gladiatorial bouts and where they would at this time throw uh, the Christians to the wild animals that the gladiators would fight. So when Polycarp entered the stadium, a voice from heaven said, be strong and play the man, Polycarp. No one saw the speaker, but many of our people who were there heard the voice. And as word spread throughout the city that Polycarp had been arrested, there was a tremendous uproar. When he approached, the proconsul asked him if he were the Polycarp. And after it, he admitted. And then the proconsul tried to dissuade him, saying, Respect your age and swear by Caesar's fortune. Recant and say, Away with the atheist. Now, side note, the Christians at the time were called atheists. They were called atheists because they wouldn't worship the uh, Roman gods. So it's kind of interesting if you ever meet someone who says, you know, I'm an atheist. If you're a Christian, you say, hey, me too. Um, I bet I actually disbelieve in more gods than you disbelieve in. (laughs) So it said, away with the atheist, away with the Christians. And then Polycar looked at the crowd and waved his hand and said, well, away with the atheists. But the governor then pressed him and said, Take the oath and I will set you free. Curse the Christ. But Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And then the proconsul persisted, Just swear by Caesar's fortune and I will set you free. Just swear, curse the Christ. And Polycarp replied, If you suppose that I could do this, pretending not to know who I am, then listen carefully. I am a Christian, and if you wish to learn the teachings of this Christianity, choose the day, and I will instruct you. So they go back and forth, uh, kind of a long kind of back and forth, and then the proconsul says, I have wild beasts I will throw to you. Polycarp says, call them. He says, if you disregard the wild beast, then you will be consumed by fire unless you repent. And Polycarp declared, you threaten a fire that burns for a time and quickly is extinguished. Yet there's a fire you know nothing about that awaits all the wicked in judgment. Do what you will. And as he said these things and many other things, he was filled with courage and joy. And his features were filled with such grace that they did not pale with alarm at what was being said to him. Then the proconsul was astounded, and he sent for his herald into the center of the arena to announce three things. One, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. But at this, the whole multitude and the whole crowd living in Smyrna boiled with anger and shouted at the tops of their lungs, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians. 
the destroyer of our gods who teaches us, who teaches many not to offer sacrifices and worship. Then they demanded that he be burned. What a thing to say about this is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of the gods. Then the crowd demanded that he burned. They took him up. They gathered the logs. They stripped his clothes. And right before they set the pyre on fire, he prayed out loud, O Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we know you, I bless you that for this day and this hour, I may with the martyrs share in the cup of Christ for the resurrection to eternal life of both soul and body and the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among them today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice according to your divine fulfillment. For this reason, I praise you for everything. I bless you and I glorify you through the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through whom be all glory to you and the Holy Spirit, both now and into the age to come. Amen. And when he had finished saying these things, the fire was lit and we had the privilege to witness the marvel. Indeed, this was he, the Polycarp, one of the elect, the most wonderful apostolic and prophetic teacher of our time, the bishop of our beloved church, and every word that he uttered was fulfilled. So ended the life of the marvelous and apostolic Polycarp. So here you have another individual who likewise is plunged into a public storm of shame, but does it with such dignity and grace and poise and it's worth thinking, like, how do you raise kids like that? How do you raise kids who can be that strong, who can enter into any situation and be strong and survive? That's one of the things we want to do here, one of the things we want to do and want to be. So let's take a moment and let's just pray now as we'll pray for people who are in one of those three situations, because those are the three life situations that can put tremendous pressure on you, that can tempt you to not hold on to the faith, to not play the man, to turn your back. So we'll pray for people in those situations. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the tremendous illustration and example of people who remain faithful in the midst of the most challenging situations. And we ask that you help us. That helps relativize our difficulty that we could experience. But we ask for the grace and courage to live well Lord, I want to pray now for all those who are experiencing different types of sufferings and trouble. Pray for those who experience chronic disease or in just a season of sadness and are depressed. Lord, we praise you that you are the sustainer of life and the source of all of our hope. Lord, I pray for all those who are enduring long-term illnesses. Encourage them in their persistent pain. Don't let them give way to d discouragement and doubt. Lord, I pray for all those who are in charge to give them care. There's so many people in our church whose job is to care for those who are in difficulties and are suffering. I pray that you would strengthen them. Give them the confidence of your loving care. Let them be encouraged by the fact that you know our weaknesses and you can sympathize with every sorrow. So Lord, we ask that you would look on those who are suffering. Nourish their souls with patience comfort them with a sense of your goodness and lift up your countenance on them. Give them peace. Lord, we pray for the brokenhearted. We ask that you would turn their sorrow into joy, that you would remember those who are 
sick, elderly, homeless, destitute. We pray that you would remember those that the world has forgotten. Pray that you would befriend the innocent sufferers. We know that like Polycarp and many of the Christians in Smyrna, there's so many people who are uh, suffer and it's no cause or fault of their own. It's the devastating effects from other people's sin or sin in this world. We pray that you would comfort them. We pray that you would preserve those, especially those who are in poverty like the Smyrna was or under difficult, intense economic pressure. Help them to know who and where their true riches are. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name.